I'm Natalie Alexander, and welcome to The Next Page, the podcast of the United Nations Library, Geneva. Our aim in this podcast is to advance the conversation on multilateralism through discussions with various contributors, and this episode brings you some thoughts on international leadership. The director of the UN Library, Geneva, Francesco Pisano, speaks with Fabrizio Hosschild, the Assistant Secretary General for Strategic Coordination at the United Nations, about his thoughts on principled leadership, moral courage and integrity, and what this means for the United Nations today. Their conversation brings out his insights from 30 years of working for the UN system, but is also centered on his recent article called Courage and Integrity in UN Leadership, which draws upon some of the ideals and legacies of former UN Secretary General Doug Hammarskjöld. You can read the full article published this year by the Doug Hammarskjöld Foundation as part of a series marking 100 years of international civil service. We have the link for you in the podcast description. Meanwhile, enjoy this conversation. I'm here with Fabrizio Oschild, who is Assistant Secretary General with the United Nations Secretariat, and you're responsible for strategic coordination in the office of the Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, at the UN in New York. Fabrizio, welcome to our podcast. It's a great pleasure to be with you. The pleasure is ours. Would you like to tell our audience, first of all, I said your title, but what it is that you do? I work with the Secretary General. And the Secretary General has a vision of a much more joined up, much more united, much more coherent, cohesive United Nations system in order for it to have a much greater impact on those who really need it most. And so my job is to support him and other senior staff in his office in bringing the system together so that we, we have greater impact. And what that means in particular is I support something like a cabinet, the executive committee, I prepare the meetings, I chair a meeting of so-called deputies, deputies to the principal who sit on his cabinet, his executive committee, and I work with them to prepare decisions for the Secretary General to take uh, that bind the system to more coherent action in situations where the UN is most needed, with a view to making the system as effective, as impactful as possible for those who suffer most. Uh, your days must be pretty busy with that, also because your functions, I understand, are the core of the reform program of the Secretary General. But we invited you to this podcast, especially to talk about leadership. We want to talk about leadership with you today and courage and integrity. You wrote a very interesting piece that actually motivated me to call on you for this podcast. And you wrote this piece that is entitled Courage and Integrity in UN Leadership. And this is a new piece that came out as part of a series on international civil service, 100 years of international civil service by the Doug Amashot Foundation. I found this piece that you wrote fascinating because it's very telling of the dilemma that the international community is in today. The suspension between interests and the need for moral courage that you, you talk about. And one of the things that really caught my attention is at one point you used this term principal leadership and it's really something that draw my attention and I, I, I think that it's important that we explain a little bit about principal leadership before we go to discussing really integrity underpinned by courage which is what you 
put in this piece, this famous sentence by Dag Amachard. Yeah, think, think of it like this. Leaders have followers for a number of different reasons because they are heads of very large organizations that have a very strong profit motive and people follow them, pursue them because it fits a broader objective of making large profits from which all employees or people benefit. So they lead by virtue of that, of the success in that objective. Other leaders, political leaders, lead it because they have a big political machinery behind that and because they're seen as good representatives of a set of political positions that people can identify with. And then you have a set of leaders who don't necessarily have any political machinery or bureaucracy below them. They may, but they may not. But they are they attract followers by virtue of their ideals and not just by virtue of holding those ideals, but by virtue of their ability to change reality with those ideals. And often those are the most powerful leaders. And of course, there are many exceptional examples of that. Gandhi, Mandela, if you want a more recent one, arguably Jacinda Ardern. And of course, many of them are political leaders, some of the examples uh, I've mentioned. But what rallies people isn't necessarily the political machinery that they may or may not command, but the strength of their vision and the sense they give um, to people of being part of a bigger endeavor that somehow unites and transcends humanity and transcends the individual needs of of each one and connects with a with a bigger whole and i think ultimately that's what we're all looking for and that's why those leaders are particularly can be particularly powerful and certainly particularly memorable so there is this definition to go back to the definition of um, by daga mashot of integrity underpinned by courage and of course there is talking about moral courage or political courage and in your piece you make this difference between physical courage and moral courage and you distinguish the two and you say that physical courage is derived more by our ancient history of courage in battle for example so the ability to stand before the risk of death this is what you say in your in your piece and would you like to talk about this other courage the moral courage that 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 I'm not sure to refer to when he said it's made of integrity the the main trait of this type of courage is integrity underpinned by courage i think both moral courage and physical courage have something in common and that is being ready to withstand adversity in the case of physical courage it's the threat to one's physical integrity. It's the threat to, to being hurt or, or worse, killed. In the case of moral courage, it's the threat of pushback or even ridicule or stigmatization because of one's ideals. So it's a similar going into battle, but the, the threat is not so much to one's physical integrity as it is to the ideals and values that one is standing up for. And that's, in some ways, that's more difficult and more rare because we all recognize um, physical courage, but moral courage is more controversial. And often it's only recognized decades after the practitioner passed away or in many cases uh, was, was assassinated. I think in the UN it's particularly important because what gives the UN its value, its authority, 
are the ideals and norms that underpin it. And those ideals and norms frequently come into conflict with political interests of particular groups, of particular member states. And there, the UN leaders are often confronted with this tension between the UN, the ideals stand for, and the political interests that sometimes push UN leaders in a different direction. And this is what integrity is about for Hammarskjöld. And it's important to point this out because when we hear the word integrity today, we think of honesty, we think of not in uh, the absence of corruption, we think of certain types of correct bureaucratic behavior. And of course, it meant that for um, Hammarskjöld, but it meant much more. With Hammarskjöld, integrity meant, above all, loyalty to the ideals of the UN. So it meant more than just not stealing from the till uh, and and addressing one's staff uh, appropriately and being polite and civil. It meant, above all, standing up for the ideals and norms of the UN, in particular when it was difficult to do so. And that, I think, has sort of been lost when we talk of integrity sometimes. I think it's quality um, that's often underestimated, but of course it takes courage. And that's why Hammarskjöld emphasized integrity underpinned by courage, because it is not easy, in particular with powerful member states, to stand up and not be utilized for their particular political ends of the moment, but to reiterate the broader principles and the broader norms for which the UN stands. And actually, what what you're saying brings to memory the famous episode of, I don't want to misquote him, so I I won't quote him, but Doug Arnashod actually responding to Nikita Khrushchev in front of the General Assembly when Nikita Khrushchev actually wanted, tried to push him to resign over uh, over a crisis in Africa. And he actually responded that it it would be too easy. It takes more courage to stay than to bow to the power of a great power. So... This is true. I, I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit more on what you write in, in this piece. You say that while states depend on their resources and power to affirm themselves, the United Nations can only depend on its moral standing. So this is a little bit what we were saying, you were saying about individuals, but this refers now to entities and organizations Well, countries have armies, countries have large budgets, countries have formidable political capacity that they use to exercise influence in terms of their interests, their economic interests, their political interests, their military interests. The UN has none of that. The UN has a budget to do a very specific job, but not to exercise undue influence. The UN has no standing army. It it has peacekeepers loaned to it by by states with very, very concrete, specific mandates. So for the UN to exercise any influence in the fulfillment of the Charter, influence in the pursuit of peace, influence in the pursuit of human rights, influence in the pursuit of sustainable development, the only thing it has going for it is its moral voice, is the authority it derives from being seen by we the peoples, from being seen by citizens of the world and governments as having a certain moral standing. Moral standing lent to it by the norms, the charter, the values that underpin it, which ultimately are norms and values that represent the best aspirations of all member states. They don't 
they're not plucked from heaven. They're the result of very long negotiating processes. Um, many of them initiated at a time when there was still a lot of idealism after the horrors of the Second World War. But it, to, to remain credible uh, and to have some influence as an interlocutor, it has to stay faithful to those ideals, to those norms, um, which at times is very, very difficult. And at Hammarskjöld's time, it was very difficult. And arguably today, it's also very difficult because geopolitics are back with a vengeance because there's a lot of geopolitical rivalry where arguably shorter-term political and strategic interests are predominating over a sense of the greater good for all humankind. Right, and this is something that you point out in your article. Actually, you say at one point you talk about these opposing tensions between these type of interests, short-lived interests, and this broader, you speak about the broader interest of humanity and how the UN tends to align itself on the latter, whereas countries most commonly in their normal behavior align themselves in the pursuit of the interests that are more that are closer to to reach and my question to you is you also say you, you related the analysis by by Doug Amashod, uh, back in the 60s when he was analy- analyzing and reflecting on these opposing tensions already at that time and he was actually then trying to detail you know what were the core values that one should pursue any identified loyalty independence and integrity and you mentioned this in your article but my question is different opposing tensions the analysis of Doug Amashod you just said it was difficult then and it's difficult now and in his analysis seems to be correct still today now to the common listener out there it could sound like in over almost 60 years we're still where we were at that time are we stuck in time while there is a, a transition there are other thinkers who think the multilateralism is in transition the environment is in transition we approach what some thinkers now openly define as a climate crisis. There are actually politicians and prime ministers calling it like that. So I don't want the people who are listening to us to think that the UN is stuck where at the time of that gamma showed. So what is really happening? Well, let me, let me take you back a step. You said at the beginning that there was this conflict between states who have short-term interests and the UN that has long-term interests. I think it's more complex than that because what the UN is is a function of what states have agreed that it should be. The UN is what its norms, what its charter say it is. And that was a function of deliberations of states. So there's not the UN on one hand, the states on the other. But I would argue that where member states came together, for example, on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, for example, more recently on the Sustainable Development Goals, for example, on the Paris Climate uh, Accord, they came together and agreed on longer-term goals in the best interests of all. And those which the UN represents, which we as the Secretariat are there to uphold, but which are derived from member states, often come in conflict with more shorter interests, often tied to the specific administration of a day. Both result in, in, come from states, but some are more, I would argue, more temporary, often linked to the political positions of a particular administration, but were there to uphold the broader, longer-term norms, were not there to defend 
narrow political uh, interests. And we're also there to look for where there's a convergence of view among member states. We're not there to defend the views of any individual states. We're there to look for common ground and the convergence of the border group. So that's where the tensions are. It's not so much UN versus member states. It's more complicated than that. And in terms of your, your question, are we stuck in time? We're in a very difficult situation now where there's a resurgence of geopolitical rivalry. That's obvious. Many members of the Security Council have commented uh, on the fact that it's they've never seen it so dysfunctional since the Cold War. It's having great difficulties coming together on major conflicts. Syria is is the most blatant example of chronic failure um, uh, for the Security Council to live up to its original purpose of promoting peace and security. So geopolitical rivalry is back. Uh, as a result, we have entrenched conflicts that are proving very resilient to negotiation, very resilient to mediation, a proliferation of conflict actors. We have major breakdown uh, around dealing with climate change. Even the countries that remain strongly behind the Paris Climate Accord are showing signs of not being able to live up to the commitments they made uh, then. We have a lot of uncertainty generated not only by new geopolitical rivalry, but also by the emergence of new technologies that bring massive benefits, but also bring a lot of uncertainty, uncertainty around their impact on jobs, uncertainty in terms of social cohesion and and their ability to generate uh, hate speech, uncertainty in terms of the, the potential impact on human rights and the invasion on privacy. So we, we live in very uncertain times. I think most of us can say that thanks not least to the efforts of the UN, but thanks also to enlightened governments across the world, we live in better times than our parents and certainly than our grandparents. I think most of humanity today can say that. But how many can say that that will be true for our children or our grandchildren? I think we're at a cusp uh, at the moment and it's not so clear what direction we'll, we'll take. So in that sense, I don't think we're so far off the sort of threats that Hammarskjöld uh, lived in the middle of, where there was the threat of nuclear Armageddon as a, as a result of the standoff of superpowers. We're in another sort of standoff of superpowers. It's different, but it's there again. There was great uncertainty then in terms of the future of global peace and security in face of the rivalries. They're different today, but they're as acute today as they are then. So I think the sort of leadership that Hammarskjöld was calling for, far from being something historic, it was way ahead of his time, because I would argue it's more needed now than ever. Because amidst all this realpolitik, amidst the assertion of national policies, amidst all this uncertainty, getting back to the fundamentals of thinking of what is important for humankind, how do we make sure our kids and grandkids have a future, is what should be driving us all. And that is at the heart of what is in the UN. It's not about getting re-elected tomorrow or what's going to be the most favorable reaction in 30 seconds from my tweet. It's about how do we ensure sustainability of our planet and a better world for our grandchildren. Well, I think that that is certainly true. And thank you so much for bringing this into context. There is a second set of, it's not a second, there is a set of limitations that you highlight in your, in your article. So we're not stuck in time, fine. Things have evolved. 
the type of leadership that Dagama showed was calling for is very necessary today. But something that hasn't changed is the structural limitations of the UN as a as a large bureaucracy. And this, you know, Perez de Cuellar defined it very actually you quote him. You quote him in your article, and Perez de Cuellar, the, the Secretary General, for those who don't know, um, said the idealism and hope of which the Charter is a luminous expression have to confront the narrow dictates of national policies. Now, that is a Secretary General writing, and, and that is a political limitation. Then there is the bureaucratic limitation. We have had Mark Malo Brown, even Guterres has taken this head on, and you work with him and you work for him. So I would like you to, to tell us a little bit about this spiritual reform today is largely a recognition of these limitations, which is already an act of courage, I think of moral courage, and a desire to overcome these limitations in the broader interest of humanity. Am I right or am I wrong? Is this the spirit in which you guys in New York are working on the reforms? Yes, I mean, the, the UN is always caught between the ideals it was set up to pursue, ideals agreed upon by its members, and the political realities of individual interests of its member states, and the heavy bureaucracy it has grown to become. And it's the, the leaders in the UN always have to na navigate between those, those pools. And you cannot, you cannot ignore the politics. As Hammarskjöld said on one occasion, we have to be politically celibate, but not political virgins. I think what he meant by that is we have to be familiar with the politics, but not take sides. So the politics of reality, the Secretary General and other leaders have to deal with all the time and that cannot be avoided. And the bureaucracy has to be managed and the bureaucracy part of it is, is member state generated. And so, you know, inevitably we're an organization of compromises and the role of the Secretary General and other leaders is to get compromises that are close to our foundational principles and norms uh, as possible. But it's also what the system will bear, where you can get a convergence of views among the member states. Let me give you an example. The ceasefire that was negotiated in Yemen, many criticized it for being inadequately detailed in terms of the action plans that were borne out for not having sufficient uh, mechanisms to ensure oversight, etc., etc. But it was a ceasefire and it saved thousands of lives. And the text that was got was the text, it wasn't the best text in the world. It wasn't the ideal ceasefire agreement, but it saved lives and it has, it's helped some progress in Yemen. The Secretary General wanted reform. Part of his reform proposals was to have more budget flexibility. I mean, in a $48 billion operation, you would imagine that the Secretary General would have some liberty to move amounts between line items. Uh, the member states didn't want to grant that. Uh, I mean, it makes all the sense in the world. Uh, you know, in a large corporation, in a large private nonprofit, it would be unthinkable to have that level of micromanagement. But that was as much as he could get from member states. So we have to work with that. So you're always, this clash of ideal and the real is constant. And the Secretary General has a very difficult job in deciding how far pragmatism should go before it is compromising too much on the norms and principles that underline that. And that's a daily judgment call that makes the office one of the most difficult ones in the world. Let's go back to leadership for a second before we... We continue our discussion. We're going to have maybe another 10 minutes together. I'll give you my definition of, of leadership. Whereas management is doing the right things, 
for me, leadership is to make things right. That entails a certain amount of change. That's why a lot of people identify change makers with leaders. Now, there are, very, there are several types of leadership. And one of the things that you say in your article, you draw a positive parallel between this set of limitations that we have as a, as a large organization and the emergence of leadership. You say it is precisely the organization's political constraints, heavy bureaucracy, and conservative organizational culture that make enterprising, courageous leadership all the more essential. There is in this thought an element of hope, but I'm hoping also an element of knowledge. You say this because you know it, and I trust you know it because you're part of the top management of our organization. Would you like to tell us about that? I think your definition is very is very accurate. Managers managers are always attached to structures, and their job is making those structures work efficiently and effectively, and essentially, not always, but mainly maintaining a status quo. A leader is not necessarily attached to a structure. Some of the most successful leaders had no structures under them, but they gathered followers by by other means. So they're they're not relying on structures or hierarchies to bring about change. They're, they're doing it by virtue of the spirit they imbibe. And I think leadership in the UN is particularly important because so much contrives towards maintaining the, the status quo, so much contrives towards conservatism, so much contrives towards caution and, frankly, paralysis. So it takes an extra dose of vision and courage and integrity to, to get above that all and take the bureaucracy and take those in it to a different place. I mean, I've been very privileged in my career. I, I, I worked with Sadako Ogata, the 12-year head of UNHCR, who transformed UNHCR, who extended its services to hundreds of thousands, to millions of internally displaced people, to, to, who launched the first major operation of any UN entity ever in the midst of conflict during the, the Bosnia War, and can be credited with having improved the lives of millions in that process. I worked with Louise Arbour, uh, one of the most visionary uh, leaders in the UN, who extended the reach of the human rights mechanisms from the bubble on the beautiful banks of Geneva to where they were most needed in the field. I worked with Sergio Vieira de Mello, who did in, an incredible job in consolidating peace in East Timor, in leading the mission at the beginning in, of Kosovo and later in Iraq. And now I have the privilege to work with Guterres, who's inherited the UN at the most difficult time in recent history and making it relevant in many situations where not everybody wishes it to be relevant. So I've been very privileged in that sense, but I've seen they all had one thing in common. They, they refused to be beaten back by the bureaucracy. They refused to be dominated only by considerations of political caution. All of them were political enough to know that you need to be political cautious sometimes, but they were all driven by a larger vision and tried to make the politics work in the service of that vision rather than let political paralysis paralyze them. So that's been very inspirational and uh, I've seen it throughout uh, my career and I see it in much of UN leadership today. So it's still alive and well, but arguably it's grown more difficult in our current times. But as it's grown more difficult, it's more necessary than ever. And that was also the point of my article. One of the characteristics of overachieving leaders is that they always find a way to lead through others. So they actually 
operate like in a in a cattle drive where they lead they lead people almost from behind the pack by empowering and trusting action to others and infusing the organization with leadership in your experience you mentioned some of the outstanding achievers of our organizational culture the demelo the arbor the ogata are really the, the icons of leadership in the un would you say that the culture of the house is going towards better leadership and empowering leaders throughout the organization do you see something moving in that direction so that the, the reform action that this secretary general is taking would actually remain beyond him as a building block of more better more courageous leadership in the UN of the future i think what you're saying is is right the best leaders inspire others to become leaders inspire others to take initiative and above all make others feel safe in taking initiative because uh, i think in the un while risk is very seldom uh, rewarded and mistakes are frequently uh, frowned upon but if you want to drive innovation if you want to lead the organization to a new place mistakes are inevitable and you have to create a culture which is not exactly our dominant culture where people feel safe taking risks of course appropriate risks risks in the service of the organization and the best leaders i think do do that i think the secretary general this secretary general has put a lot of emphasis on delegation of authority on trying to empower especially our leaders uh, in in the field i mean you you in as in peacekeeping you have this paradox of senior political leaders who theoretically in chapter 7 missions can command armies that can involve in, in lethal combat but cannot fire a wrongdoing abusive staff member and there there is total disproportion often between political importance or even military importance and bureaucratic uh, ability to maneuver and the secretary general is trying best to overcome that and by in that sense empower the people under him and i have seen constantly as our people come under fire and i mean uh, both literal fire and political attack how he has stood up for them and protected them from political driven uh, attacks so i think he is very much in that model but i do think it's a, we still have a culture that is very conservative we still have a culture that's very risk averse and i think we do need to work harder at at, at changing that if we're to bring the un closer to the hamasholdian ideal of an organization that stands up for what gives it uh, authority and doesn't always bow to short term political expediency of the loudest um, member state and when you when you talk about the evolution of our organization where we should be going during to to in the future you actually use very precise terms you you speak about courage insight and foresight i, I particularly like this triad courage insight and foresight and you then you you elaborate on how these these are necessary and towards the end of your analysis you bring in the concept of clarity which i like very much because it's another trait of leadership and actually you quote louise arbor who said a leader must first bring clarity about what to do then courage falls into place and i think this is very a very it's a brilliant it's huge a leader must first bring clarity about what to do and then courage will follow and this is something that you see in your in your work you, I, i see you you have comments yeah. there 
Yeah, I think this is very important and, and perhaps a point I should have mentioned earlier. Courage is not an end in itself. The aim isn't to be bold and criticize this or that member state because one doesn't agree. That is not the point at all. It's always courage to a specific end and the specific end is linked to the mandates and the work and the values of the UN and it's linked to advancing those. So the first stage is to work out in any one situation, and that is part of my job in New York, what exactly are the ends we should be um, striving for? What should we be do trying to do in Cameroon? What should we be trying to do in um, Syria? And once one has that clarity of vision of where we want to end up, how we are best in the very difficult contrary circumstances going to realize the objectives of the UN, which is ultimately about helping those who need us most, then courage follows in the implementation of that. The thing is with Louise, if I can be a little critical, Louise, with Louise, vision came easily and courage did fall automatically into place. That's not always the case. Um, you know, we often get lost in the UN, especially we can be very distracted by the particular interests, our own bureaucratic interests, our particular interests of our particular part of the bureaucracy has that generates its own politics and we can get lost in that. And the Secretary General has worked very hard at overcoming that and making sure that there's a broader system-wide vision that is derived from the nature of the problem, not from the nature of our bureaucracy or our bureaucratic interests, but from the nature of what the problem and the people who need us most in that problem desire. So that is getting that vision is not always easy. And then maintaining that courage is not always easy when there's pushback, because inevitably there's pushback, especially in conflict situations, especially in conflict situations that have a strong international element to it. But I've seen with the Secretary General that once he has clarity of what he wants to do, he is very determined and very persistent in, in pursuing it and very good about shielding off the blows, both to himself and to those uh, who are working with him to pursue the agreed-upon vision. So I think having that clarity of foresight, that clarity of vision of where one wants to head is absolutely critical. And a lot of his time, uh, and in support of him, my time, is around building up that clarity of vision. And then, yes, courage should follow and should be sustained because all these situations, and I think that's ever more evident, persistence is a very large degree of uh, success. And in fact, one of the Secretary General's uh, favorite sayings is to tell people that the secret to success, success has 10 ingredients, persistence, 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 and so on. That's a good one. A, a point you make also in your article, you say that while there is a lot of importance in our organization given to uh, political awareness and uh, we have trainings uh, in the UN for staff and leaders, I've, I've undertaken a few and they're very interesting. And you're right, these trainings put emphasis on, on all these components of our work that relate to international uh, relations and political awareness, etc. But you say what we need is maybe more training in the areas of moral courage and all these qualities of leadership. You are in a very important position, the Secretariat for, for Strategic Coordination, you work with this executive committee. Is there something that we are doing to provide our people with more training in this sense so that when a leader has a clarity of vision, that can be translated in the clarity of what to do for everyone? I think that there's certainly been increased efforts, and you're aware of this, in the UN to build up leadership 
capacity. Whether courage, I don't think courage figures sufficiently. I certainly do my best to pr promote it. I'm sure I'm not on, on my own. I do think there's still a sense among many that in these difficult times, we have to be cautious. And I don't think the two are contradictory. I think one has to know when to be cautious and when to be courageous. And that is what makes for successful leadership in the UN. It's not about being courageous, as we just said all the time. It's about being courageous when one has a clear vision, a clear, well-informed, politically well-informed vision of what is needed. But I, th I don't think we talk enough about those dilemmas. I don't think we talk enough about when caution is appropriate and when courage is appropriate, in particular in our interaction with um, with member states, whether it's uh, in, in intergovernmental fora or whether dealing with, with host governments. I think that interplay of when, knowing when, uh, when ideas are converging and one takes advantage of that and where there are different ideas at play and one has to manage that in a way that is appropriate, diplomatic, respectful, but not at the cost of compromise on the fundamental values of the UN that ultimately are what that member state has signed up for at some stage, because we're not working anywhere. Uh, we're not working in any member state that hasn't signed the charter. We're not working, just about all our member states are parties to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So it's not as if we're uh, promoting something alien. But those interests can come into contradiction, as we said before, with narrow interests. But that very difficult interplay, which is often a very difficult judgment play, I don't think um, we talk enough about. And to the extent we talk about, I think the value of caution is often rated more highly than the value of the sort of moral courage linked to integrity that Hammarskjöld emphasized. Fabrizio, as we uh, reach the, uh, the end of this podcast, any final thoughts linked to this about this topic of leadership in the UN of today? Let me just add the obligatory footnote. I'm speaking as somebody who's had the privilege of serving three decades in this organization uh, on every continent in many conflict areas and above all having worked with and been inspired by some exceptional UN leaders. So everything I'm saying comes from that experience and is personal. I'm not speaking for the organization, much less for, for the Secretary General, although I, I don't doubt that he is a leader who very much um, looks up to Hammarskjöld and functions in that, in that mold. And he uh, certainly inspires me every day in, in that sense. But I would say, I would say that certainly any UN listener has to ask themselves, how, how in these difficult times do I best promote the values um, and norms of this organization, which ultimately are about having impact on those who most need us, who most suffer from, from a deficit in security, from a deficit in human rights, from a deficit in access to development. And that is the question every one of us should wake up asking ourselves and how we can do it better. And courage is also something that, that tends to, to thrive when groups come together and support one another, when one, when one finds nurture uh, through others. And leadership can come and should come from below. And some of the best examples of courage in, in practice, uh, I've observed not necessarily from the most senior leaders, but often from 
more junior staff, and I know senior leaders are often inspired by what they see uh, among junior staff. And every time the Secretary General comes back from the worst places like Somalia, uh, I mean, places where conflict is most acute, he uh, often refers to the inspiration he drew from both the people living in those areas and carrying on their lives under impossible conditions, but also from our staff working alongside them. So I think we have to nurture that, however difficult the circumstances, however contrary, however much pushback we feel in times from our bosses or from some member states or from the bureaucracy, that's ultimately what drew us all to the UN and we have to, we have to keep that spirit alive. That was Fabrizio Hochschild, Assistant Secretary General for Strategic Coordination. Thank you for being on the next page. <laughs>